Amen. Go and have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, I pray on this time we have remaining that you would um, strip away any self-righteousness that we have, any confidence before you that's not found in Jesus. It's only through him that we have confident access to you, and it's only through his work on our behalf that we get to be accepted and a part of your family. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises for us today that stand as our assurance for this life and the life to come. And I ask that you do a work through your spirit in us to uh, confront us where we are given to sin and pride. Um, humble us before your word that we would be shaped by it. Um, I pray that where we lack wisdom, that there be a, a degree to which you give it to us generously uh, this morning when we ask it without doubting. Uh, we pray that your word would accomplish the purposes uh, for which you have set it out to do, that it would mold and shape and convict and train and rebuke us and uh, mold us into the image of Jesus. And, and I pray that you teach us, uh, even through the example of the early church, what it means to be prayerful and what it means to be bold. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's open the book of Acts together. We'll be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in uh, verses 23 through 31. That's where we'll spend our time this morning. So grateful to be with you and I had the experience, uh, you've, I'm, I'm sure, had this experience before where you're in a, a fairly common place to you. Uh, for me this morning, I was walking through our bedroom and the lights were off. I was trying not to wake up Haley. And so it's amazing how you can navigate through a space that you have known before, like in complete darkness based on muscle memory and spatially remembering where things are. That's why when things are misplaced in the dark, it can get really dangerous, right? But we have this way of kind of returning back to the things that we've known, like even in the midst of complete darkness. And that's a little bit of what happens in this section of chapter four of the book of Acts, because we're right on the heels of a, of a miracle that's happened at the hands of Peter and John through the name of Jesus. This man has gone from lame to leaping after 40 years of being lame. And then they've been persecuted. They've been brought before religious council. They've put in prison for a night. Uh, questioned as to how they accomplished it, and then boldly proclaimed that what happened happened through the person and work of Jesus. And so now they've been let go, and they're returning back to the very things that ultimately are going to be the, the constant ballast for God's people and are still for us today. They return to God's people, and they return to prayer. And so that's where that's where we find ourselves in verse 23. So why don't you join with me? We're going to read verses 23 through 31, then we'll go back and make some observations. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 23 says this. This is God's word. When they were released, as Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed 
through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So those who were gathered together heard the words of the chief priests and the elders that had been told to Peter and John. If you look back in chapter 3, just real briefly, in verses 18 and 21, the religious leaders, after they questioned them, found no way in which they could punish them because the miracle was so legitimate. They threatened them. And they basically said, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. So they told them that once. They revisited it later. And as they went out the door, they uttered threats to them. Don't speak in the name of Jesus or else type of language. And so Peter and John kind of go out with that sort of environment, those whispers kind of covering their minds, right? And so they return back to God's people. And they go to their friends. And this is just a real simple but helpful picture. As we find ourselves inevitably in difficulty we should, by impulse and reflex, turn to the people of God to go, to speak to them, to share with them, to enter in with them in prayer, and that's exactly what we see happening here. But because of the, the miracle legitimacy of it, there's buzz throughout the city. They let them go. They go to God's people, and when they heard the story, they lifted their voice, voices together to God. So the, the impulse of this young church was to pray. When they're squeezed, they pray. And you're going to see all throughout the book of Acts in moments, not just even in moments of difficulty, they, they pray as a reflex or an impulse. We saw early on the initial birth and growth of the church, how they were devoted to prayer. That was in chapter 2, even earlier than that, before the Spirit came. They were gathered together. You might remember in the room waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and, and they were devoted to prayer. It was just the rhythm of life for them. They prayed together. They sought the Lord together. And now in the face of this resistance and threats, their, their prayerful posture remain the same. And one thing I would say here is, is that for us, when you think about prayer in your own life, my guess is for most of us, spiritual discipline-wise, prayer comes a little bit harder. It usually does for people. I know for me, prayer as a spiritual discipline comes a little bit harder than others. But as you think about your own life, think of it this way. Devotion to prayer in times where things are relatively uh, in a place of ease and blessing. If you pray in those seasons, like your reflex to pray when things are difficult will come a whole lot easier. So devotion to prayer in times of blessing will produce more natural reflexes of prayer in times of trial and difficulty. So all the more right now, to the extent you feel kind of in a season of ease and blessing, we should be devoted to praying as a, as a matter of pattern in our own lives Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. And so these people gathered together, they lifted their voices together, and this word together is, is, is in common. So they, you might remember back earlier in the book, there was this picture of of, of being of one accord, and I, I called it fierce togetherness, which is kind of the fact this Greek word is a two, is a compound word that you could literally interpret fierce togetherness. So they were together, praying together, fiercely going to God together, and there's a reminder for us that when we set out to pray together as a church, it's important for us to enter in with that same kind of fierceness as we call upon God and dependence to him because we can't do any of this without him. And so now we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of observing like how they pray. There's three specific things I want to pull out of 
this text, this moment. The first thing is that they prayed as servants in the presence of their master. So just look back at the text and see how they start this prayer. It's in the middle of verse 24 where the quotes start. They say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So this word sovereign Lord is one single Greek word that's not really used very often to describe God, but it means a supreme ruler is in control of everything. So it kind of conjures up this picture that for the people of God, they are servants. They're bond servants or slaves of a master. And so if that picture is maybe foreign to you, think of it this way. Like in the gospel, what we have is like before we know Jesus Christ, the Bible portrays us as slaves to sin and to self. That's a fair summary of the human condition. We are, we're in bondage to sin and to self. And we place our faith by the grace of God in Jesus. What happens is we become slaves of righteousness and in bondage to God as our new master. Sin is no longer my master, but Christ is. And so this posture of sovereign Lord, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it is really the, the position of subject as they come into the presence of God. In Acts 4.29, if you go down just a little bit further, we'll get there in a moment, but you can see the, this language kind of pop back up. Look at, look at it with me. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, bond servants, bond slaves to speak your word with boldness. So it's very clear that they're, they're taking the posture of, of a servant to a master, submitted to his authority. So for years, 15 years, I worked at a State Farm Insurance, and there was three really big offices uh, in the, the regional office I was a part of. And the middle office on the top floor was the executive office. And you just kind of, it was like hallowed ground. Like you wouldn't dare go in the middle building and shoot up the elevator and just run right into an executive's office. If you wanted to keep your job, you would not do that. And most of you could probably put yourself in a setting, whether it be like the principal's office in school, you can think of the president's office, whatever. You can't just rush into the room and just start uttering your requests. And so we probably know that as it relates to God. We shouldn't be flipping in his presence. But here's oftentimes I think what can happen is we can, we can turn to pray, which is a good reflex. We can go. But if, if this is the throne room of God, we can go here and we can sit down, as it were, and our speech begins with something like this. We might slowly bow our heads. We might even say good morning. And the first thing we say is, I, I need you to, or I want you to, I, I must have this take place in my life. And so we just begin to kind of rifle off requests of God as soon as we get into his presence. And what I would submit is happening here is something like this. The church is coming into the presence of God. They recognize the magnitude of being in the presence of God. And so what do they say first? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. So there's this submission to the supremacy of God. They see his holiness and his infinite worth kind of on display in front of them. And so they start with this posture of humility. Everything, including me, is subject to you. You made it all. It's all from you and through you and to you. And so you could define prayer in a lot of ways, but maybe one way you could define it is humble submission mingled with earnest supplication. 
So as we go to pray, we don't just pray just to ask things of God. We should, and we do. That's right. We'll get back to that maybe in a little bit. But there's also this humble submission to God as our master, the sovereign Lord. Like you, you own and you have and you created everything. And I stand before you humbled as one who only by your grace is able to even come into your presence. So they prayed as servants in the presence of their master. Secondly, they prayed in light of what God had revealed in his word. So they used God's word as a way in which to interpret the things that they were going through. So they prayed in light of what God had said in scripture. So let's look at where we see that. So after talking about God being sovereign, he created the sea and everything in them. In verse 25, it says, who through? So there's this switch a little bit that God is not only the God of creation, he's the God of revelation. So they say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here is they're saying, David, through the Holy Spirit, has said these things. And so they're shooting back this Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. And so they're, they're going to quote from Psalm 2. Again, they're praying and they're using God's word as a, f- a filter or a lens to view everything that's going on right in this moment. And here's what they recall or read from Psalm 2. It says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So Something like this, God the Spirit through David spoke about the Gentiles raging, the people's plotting, and the rulers rising up against this anointed. And they're essentially saying this. Look at the, the very first sentence in verse 27. For truly, as if to say now, truly right now, in light of that in Psalm 2, here's where, how we interpret our current situation. For truly in this city, right now in this moment, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So you can see the anointed, Psalm 2. There's just one who's anointed. There's going to be people that come at him. Gentiles are going to rage. Kings and people are going to come and gather against him. And the people see that has happened. Like in Jesus This word is fulfilled from Psalm 2. In this current hour, the Gentiles, the Romans, the the people, the Jewish people, and the rulers, Jewish and Roman, gathered against Jesus. The men in the city came against your servant Jesus to do whatever your plan had determined to take place, predestined to take place. We see it in your word. We rest in your sovereign plan. And so what's the significance of this for us? This isn't just like a theological construct. Some people call it biblical theology, the ability to kind of place Christ or see Jesus through the lens of the Old and New Testament, one unified story. And that is certainly present here, but it's more than that. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, you and I have the temptation, if not the likelihood, that when we go through especially difficulty, we interpret that moment, that experience, those circumstances through our feelings and our emotions. And those begin to define what we think to be true. And so the church now is orienting themselves by the word of God to understand what they're facing and what they're going through and what happened even to Jesus. So difficulties are disorienting. And we can be tempted to, through our feelings and emotions, to kind of define or try to somehow put fences around what we believe to be true. But God's word orients us to what is true and shapes our perspective. So use scripture to interpret your experience and to interpret your circumstances. Let me give you a few examples of this. 
So when you experience resistance and persecution from others because of your faith in Jesus, like we looked at last week, you can just feel that and wonder, like, what am I doing wrong? Or in light of God's word, you could say, Jesus promised that this was going to happen. He actually, he actually told me this was going to, to take place. And so I now, through the word of God, can orient myself to what God said was going to happen, actually is happening. So maybe in the midst of discouragement, maybe in the face of, like, relational conflict, with your kids, with your spouse, with your roommates, with your friends, with your family. Like we can, we can look at just merely the human elements involved in those moments or we can remember from Ephesians 6 that our battle isn't merely against flesh and blood. Apart from God's word, that would not be what we would think. We'd be like, this person is my enemy. I have to do all I can to change them, to overcome them. But God says, your battle isn't merely against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces. So God's word reorients us around the current moment, the current challenge and situation. When, when you feel spiritually dry and distant from God, we would naturally think, well, maybe this is because I have unconfessed sin. Unless you read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says this, for when I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So use God's word in the context of prayer to orient yourself to what's true. That's what the church is doing here by using Psalm 2 to interpret the situation and circumstance that they find themselves in. So orienting our perspective to God's word in prayer will help us rest in his sovereign control. So that's what we see here in this moment, that whatever your hand had predestined to take place in verse 28, so even the raging and the plotting and the gathering of people against Jesus all fulfilled the direction and counsel of God. It was his hand ultimately at work. So secondly, they prayed in light of what God revealed in his word. And lastly, they prayed for boldness to speak. So you can look at it there with me. And notably, this is the first time they ask anything of God. And they say this, and now... Lord, verse 29, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they didn't say, notably, right, Lord, if you could just remove these Jewish leaders and take them off the scene, maybe you strike them down, that would be helpful. And then we could be faithful. That's not what they did. Not that it's wrong to pray against persecution and ask for the Lord to stay the hand of those who are persecuting, but that's not what they did here. They said, now, Lord, look upon their threats it seems to be this humble acknowledgement of, Lord, we can't do anything about what they've threatened to do to us. Like, we don't have any control over them. So you look upon, like, you regard the things that they have uttered against us. So you can think of it this way. It's kind of like, Lord, you look upon them, and we'll look to you. And that's a, that's a good impulse in prayer. You hear that in the Old Testament as well. It's like, we don't know what to do, but our but our eyes are on you, right? So, Lord, you look upon the threats, and we're going to look to you. Right? you. You take care of that in your hand and your plan, but we're going to look to you. We'll do what you sent us to do. We'll speak of what we've seen and heard, and they've threatened to harm us. If we speak about Jesus, so verse 29, grant us as your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And boldness here is this picture of, of being free and clear in our speech. 
You've probably met one of these people before. You might even be this person possibly. There's some people who just don't seem to have any care about how people view them or what they think about them. You met one of these people before? Most of us do have some measure of the fear of man where we just won't do certain things. Let me give you an example. So I'm driving down college the other day, and there's this guy, probably middle-aged guy. He had some really old-school headphones on, and it, like a, maybe a Walkman. It was really old. Anybody know what a Walkman is? Right? The corded device that used to play music. And he was just jamming. Like he was dancing, like, and like nobody on the world existed except him. Like he's dancing, just jamming to his music. And I, initially my response is like, I can't, what is this guy doing? My second response is, I respect this guy. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. And there was one of those people in Loveland, Colorado. There was this woman that me and my family used to drive around Lake Loveland. There's a pretty long stretch of sidewalk around this road, probably a few miles. There was this woman that, no joke, five out of seven days of the week, she would be walking, well, she would not walk, she would dance, and she'd spin like the whole time, and she's just doing her thing with the headphones on. People are walking by her. She didn't see a person. People are driving. You're like, she does not fear man, because she would not do that if she feared man. But that's really what boldness means in this text, is to be free, like unencumbered by anything that would keep you from doing what you're supposed to do. So you're not concerned about other people. You're not concerned about what they're going to say or even what they might do to you. That's what boldness means. So it's not just simply yelling louder, being more gregarious about a subject. It could mean that, but essentially means that we're, we're free. We're free as as if unencumbered by concern, clear to share everything that God has done because we want to be faithful to him. And this next part, so we're going to, we're going to be faithful. God, you help us be bold. We're going to speak your word to, to the nations, to the people around us while you, God, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, verse 30. And I love how presumptuous this prayer is. Because it just presumes upon God. It assumes that he will do the miraculous things that only he can do. We're going to be bold. We're going we're gonna to speak. All the while, we believe that you're going to continue to do miraculous things. You're going you're gonna to heal. You're going to extend your hand. We're asking for your help to strengthen us, but we know that you're going to do what you're going to do. Heal, perform signs and wonders all through the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus forgives sin. The name of Jesus makes a lame man to be able to walk. The name of Jesus is the only name that saves people under heaven. And the church believes it's the name of the Holy Servant Jesus, which will continue to heal and work in their midst. And so church family, here's something I think we need to be challenged in. Is it, do we possess like this same simple supernatural faith? Like do we really believe that the same Jesus who rose from the grave did a, Miraculous works in the early church can and still does do miracles today. Do we believe that? Do we believe that's his character still? That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? And some of us might be tempted to kind of get into theological kind of debate here on the, the place of miracles. And I'm not even venturing into that. It's just do we believe that God still accomplishes the miraculous? Like, do we believe that? Do we believe Jesus is still at work in, in and through his people for the sake of his name? I would argue that one of the clearest indications that we believe that is how constantly and how fervently we pray. And I'm speaking to myself. 
just as I'm speaking to you, is if we truly believe that God was still in the business of accomplishing miracles, we would pray as if it's true. And I'll levy a challenge to you that I heard years ago. I've shared here, I think, one other time years ago. But I think it's a motivating and confronting sort of picture. And it's this. If God were to show up today, let's just assume he walks in the room right now, stands before us, and he says, I've got, new, I've got good news for you. Everything you prayed for the last two weeks, I'm going to give it to you. So just imagine that moment. So here's the question. What would happen in the world given how we prayed the last two weeks? Would the needle move like in the kingdom of God? Would we see people saved? Would we see nations transformed? Would we see our neighbors saved, our children saved because we have so consistently called out to God to do the things that only he can do? And I think we should feel convicted by that. I'm guessing all of us feel convicted by it because if we truly believed that this Jesus, so you're going to continue to extend your hand and heal and perform signs for the sake of your name. If we really believe that, that we would pray with a whole lot more consist- consistency and a whole lot more fervency, and myself included in that. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is verse 30 and 31. So following their time of prayer, God's presence was so tangible, it shook the place where they were. We don't really know anything about where they were. And we could have a whole kind of survey here about the way the presence of God comes on his people in different moments and places and shakes the ground, but we're not going to focus on that. But here's just a brief comment from a commentator, Arthur Pearson. He says, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so wonderfully manifested that even Dead walls felt the power of the spirit of life. He did not dwell in those walls, yet they were moved at his presence. A pretty captivating picture, right? And I think we can be captivated by trying to focus on maybe the more supernatural signs, like things shaking and moving in this place. But they don't, there's not a whole lot of time spent here on what happened or even the location. Verse doesn't say the place was shaken, so they set up an altar in that place so people could come and visit like an exhibit and say, hey, the presence of God came here one time and it shook the walls. It was great. You should have been here. That's not what happens. The emphasis is on what? After the building was shaken, the people were shaken and they were sent out. The spirit of God filled them and they spoke with boldness. That's the point of emphasis and that's what grew the church. That's what spread the gospel in the known world was not just that the place was shaken, is that the people of God were shaken and went to do exactly what they were called to do. So could it be that the more lasting and significant indication of God's presence is found in his people going and speaking with boldness? In chapter 2, verse 11, the Pentecost, Spirit of God comes, fills the people and they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In chapter 4, verse 8, Peter stands up filled with the Spirit. He preaches Christ. So there's this constant pattern of being filled with the Spirit and that equating to speaking. And think of it this way. Somewhere in Jer- Jerusalem <clears throat> today lies the area or the place where this took place, where the, the place, the foundation, the walls were shaken by the presence of God. But it's no more. But yet the church exploded and people were saved. 
beyond the walls of that particular location and moment. The world wasn't changed by visiting the walls of the place where they were gathered. The world was changed by God's people going, by God's people responding to his sending them into the world to be his missionaries and ambassadors and witnesses move with such spirit-filled boldness that they'd walk right into the mouth of the lion, the very people who told them not to speak and ultimately die a martyr's death years later for the same message to be proclaimed. I shared this in the first service and I'll share it with you just from my heart for us as a people and for me as a Christian and as a pastor. Like, you know, one of the things I long for is this. I don't want to go through my life as a Christian, as a pastor, merely pointing back in the past about how thing, how God worked in certain ways. Do you remember how God used to do this or did do this in the past? I don't want to spend the rest of however many years God gives me constantly just re- remembering, recollecting with sentimentality the way that God used to work. I want to see him work now. I want to see him save people now. I want to see him transform our city now. I want to see him transform us now and motivate us to, to go and to walk into the mouths of lions to boldly proclaim as witnesses the hope of Jesus. And if you're born again, I know that that hope is within you too. And it may need to be stirred, and maybe this morning is a part of that. But we all have a God-given responsibility to, to, to be witnesses and to be a mechanism for the grace of God to be spread right here in me, in us, in our city for his name's sake. And if that's our desire, then we have to be prayerful and we have to be bold. We have to pray for boldness and we have to pray that God would open doors and when those doors open, that he'd open our mouths to speak the way in which the early church seemed to do with confidence in Jesus' name. I want you to flip to the book of Hebrews just real quickly as we get set to take communion together. I want to kind of make a connection between this text and communion. And, and I'll do it as we've talked about the word boldness. <clears throat> and I use the illustration of coming into the presence of God. The thing that we, one of the pictures that we see, the realities of the gospel, the fruits of knowing God through Jesus Christ is that we, we do get to enter in with confidence and boldness into the presence of God. Apart from Christ, that does not exist. And we studied Genesis and Exodus, right? Sin causes separation. It separates men from God. And even through the sacrificial system, there was visible, tangible, constant evidence of the way in which man was separate from God. There's only one person that could go all the way into the presence of God. That was the high priest, and that just one time a year. But now because Jesus has come, he's become the ultimate sacrifice. He's paved the way through his blood and his body, his blood shed, his body pierced for us. He's now paved the way to where we get to rush in. We get to rush into the presence of Almighty God and sit at his feet as subjects, but also as children. To pray and communion is a way for us to remember what paved the way for us to be a child of God. It was the work of Christ. And so as we come, like we we kind of walk, we march the same path to these tables because we enjoy a common salvation. Like we're here this morning together to remember again that none of us have been saved or commended to the 
the family of God by anything that we've done, but only by Jesus and his work for us. But let me read Hebrews 10, verses 19, just to illustrate what I just shared. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And if you're in Christ this morning, part of this is to remember that when Jesus purchased you, that he purchased you that you might be zealous for good deeds and to walk in holiness and righteousness for his name. And so this moment has a purifying effect as well. We get to confess, agree with God that our sin is wrong and turn from it afresh and anew and, and be reminded of the grace that covers us still. So I want to invite you to bow your head with me and I'll take a minute and pray. I ask you to consider maybe the ways in which you need to confess even this morning and throw yourself again upon him, the mercy of God found in Jesus. And if you're in this room and you've never surrendered to Christ, you don't know him as your savior, please don't be fooled into thinking that there's some outward tradition you can be given to that would make you right with God. Neither communion or baptism or any other created thing or any ritual you could ever do would make you right with God. Um, otherwise, Jesus never would have had to die. But it's all by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So look to Jesus, the one who is able to do everything that you could never do, and the one who died as your substitute that you might become his righteousness. And so if you've done that this morning, you place your faith in him, then I want to invite you to Come and grab a cup and a cracker. There's a table in the back, and there's one up here in the front. All the crackers are gluten-free. Grab a cup and a cracker, take them back to your seat, and we'll take the element.
Let us together consider how to stir up one another to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, why don't you stand with me as we take the Lord's Supper together. Let's go ahead and stand together. Let's pray us, pray us through this. God, I pray that we wouldn't take this moment lightly. Um, we have likely done this many times before for in this room. Um, and I pray that you'd amaze us at the wonder of your grace, uh, that we get to, to approach um, your presence, God, with confidence through the blood of Jesus. And, and I pray that we would lose any thoughts of self-reliance or self-righteousness and as we take this, uh, we take it in remembrance of you, Jesus, uh, that you died for us. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were sinners that you gave your life. And so as we take this cracker, um, it's a reminder to us, Jesus, that your, your very real body was pierced for us. You were spit upon. Uh, you were mocked and scourged in our place so that we wouldn't have to be those things. So we thank you for your body given for us and we take this cracker in remembrance of it. Let's take it together. And Father, as we take this cup together, uh, would you remind us of the full weight of our wrath that was, uh, was taken upon Jesus, that he drank all of your wrath for our rebellion and sin and so there's none left for us to drink. So as we stare at the cup empty after we take it, we want to thank you that uh, everything we need for forgiveness is found in Christ. And we have our hearts and our consciences sprinkled clean, and now we can enter in full assurance of, of our salvation together. So we take this cup in remembrance to the blood of Jesus shed for our sin. Let's take it together. And Father, we love you. We need you more than we know. Um, we need you more than we pray. And so I pray that you would incite in us um, more and more a heart for prayerful boldness. That we boldly pray for you to work in ways that only you can. And that we boldly preach um, the name and the work of Jesus in this world that desperately needs to know the hope that he provides and only he provides. And we love you. We're grateful to be doing this together, and we sing this song now as a glad response to what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.